Welcome to Beyond the Code, the podcast where industry experts and brilliant legal minds discuss the impact of new emerging technologies. I'm your host, Yitzi Hammer, a lawyer and tech enthusiast. Join us as we explore the legal, regulatory, and ethical issues surrounding AI, blockchain, and more. Get ready to go beyond the code and stay ahead of the game. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Code. Today on Beyond the Code, we have a very special guest, Dr. Oliver Schoenberg, a colleague, a friend, and an excellent lawyer from Hamburg, Germany. Welcome, Oliver. So excited to have you here today. In addition to being an excellent lawyer, Oliver is also an entrepreneur, but I'll let him tell you more about that himself. Oliver, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Yatin. It's been it's been a while that we tried to connect uh, in a more for a more deeper conversation. Also, meet in Hamburg. Unfortunately, that didn't meet uh, that didn't work out last time you were here. So I'm I'm really glad that we have this chance. Also, talking to an audience at the same time, but that's just fine. I think we're both both used to that. So thanks first of all. Um, yeah, an introduction briefly. As you already said, I'm an attorney myself. My background is in intellectual property licensing, which means before uh, Web three, I've been monetizing IP rights, patents, trademarks, copyrights, image rights, whatever you have it in a combination with media law, with technology. So for, um, for, for smartphone devices, standard essential patents, but also for social media, uh, Twitch, live streaming, stuff like that. Uh, when I came to Web3, um, that was not, not in the early days of Bitcoin and all of that. Uh, when I came to Web3, it was really in the era of NFTs. That is really when I first understood what the blockchain was all about. Uh, I didn't bother trying to understand it during Bitcoin because I was too late and bothered by that uh, fact. Uh, so when I came there, I understood that many of the discussions that were going on were still a bit in, in a cloudy and murky water, especially when it came to intellectual property uh, assumptions. Uh, and some of them I thought were simply wrong without even understanding much about the blockchain technology. And the, dig, uh, the, the more I started digging into the, the technology, the function and, and, uh, and the possibilities, um, I discovered that some of the things were simply utterly wrong from a legal perspective. So I thought it makes sense to make a couple of statements, to start interacting with the communities. Uh, and what I found out is that it is a, a very open community. People are super interested, not too many lawyers in the early days uh, that, that you wanted to interact with, but well, more the practitioners and people who wanted to do something with the uh, IP rights of their NFTs uh, that, that they, they heard some promises uh, of projects uh, um, allowing them to use uh, the digital image or something like that. So I thought that that was a good starting point. And from coming from that and coming from IP, um, more and more clients started reaching out and asking, um, well, what is this NFT thing? Do we have to uh, be part of it? Do we need a project? Um, and I figured out that there are many questions that I still don't uh, find answers to myself, uh, regulatory law, tax law, property law, some really fundamental questions uh, that I needed answers for. So I started educating myself in chats with attorneys, with tax advisors, and then going a bit broader internationally and trying to find answers also from different law perspectives. And that is actually the, the 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 birth time also of the idea of web3 lex and web3 lex we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second 
where three legs is ultimately the idea of giving people access to legal information um, from the perspective of different national laws. So we ask questions, we put together catalogs of questions, um, and the answers to that same question come from attorneys and tax advisors from different jurisdictions. So you as a user who uses the platform where we publish these answers can now compare the different national laws and get some indicative answers to a lot of different questions for Web3 Legal Self. Yeah, and and, and I, I had the opportunity to sort of follow the evolution of Web3 Lex. We spoke, I don't know, I guess it was about a year ago when you were starting to build up the content and you were getting contributors on board. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I didn't get around the time to contributing myself, but um, I have followed very religiously the, the platform's growth. And I'd be curious to hear from you what the, what the traje trajectory was like. I know that you know both of us are service providers, and as a service provider, there's like a very specific mindset you need to get into vis-a-vis -vis how you deal with clients, how you manage your tasks, et cetera. And when you have to put an entrepreneur hat on and you know focus on actually building something besides a practice, I think all um, all lawyers, um, s certainly sole practitioners, are entrepreneurs in a sense. You know, we, we need to grow our practice, we need to grow our client base, we need to maintain our client base. So we're all entrepreneurs in a sense, but when you're actually like building a platform and you're engaging with developers and you're trying to, to both bring on contributors and also get people to read and engage with this content, it's very, very challenging. And um, I'm curious to hear from your perspective what it was like making that transition from a service provider to somebody who's, you know, managing a... Um, the growth of a of a platform uh, well um, indeed uh, it has been a challenge and it still is kind of a challenge uh, because first of all i'm still an attorney so i'm still an attorney advising clients in the field of web3 of web3 generative ai and also in the field of intellectual property as i have been doing before um so combining uh, my my role as a service provider and still finding time uh, and giving priority sometimes to my own project uh, is not is not super easy. Uh, now, I was lucky because from the beginning, my co-founder um, is a very active person. Um, so Manuel, you may have uh, known him as well. So Manuel is, is a person that has a background also in building brands, but also in user experience, user interface. So he knows how to target audiences, for example. Um, he's the person who writes uh, text and he's pretty good at at exactly that. So we have someone else in the founder team um, who is a who has a strong development background. So he actually has his own little company of developers who can support in building the platform. And then we have another um, great co-founder who is also an IP attorney, but who is uh, um, uh, from a younger generation, therefore has a much better access to some of the technical stuff and has a lot of time and resources also that she spends um, to, to, to build the platform and to interact with the people. So we have four different hats with four different functions and we have started like that from the beginning. So that, that was really very good. Um, and then basically finding partners who want to support us from the, from, from the start um, has been key to the development. Um, so now we found this wonderful creative and digital agency, Mutabor, uh, who is in Hamburg, and they supported us all the way through the brand uh, relaunch, uh, the campaigning, and also they built our virtual environments and the website and everything. They even helped us create the NFT project that we launched. 
So having partners, I think, is key. But now to the challenges, and the daily challenges are much more trivial. It's just how do you get people to know your platform? How do you get the content for your platform? How do you find people who you need for the content? And for us, as you rightly said, and you're a good example, um, it is difficult to find contributors who will contribute. So what we uh, it's already difficult to find individuals in different countries, in different jurisdictions who have a track record, knowledge, and also the willingness to advise clients on a legal uh, perspective um, for Web3. So Web3 practitioners in the legal field are, not, are still not very many out there. The ones who are in, uh, who you, you can see and you can find typically um, have quite some business, so they don't have too much time to interact with you and your platform, which means people that are interested, we have a lot, people we are interested and then make contributions that's the tricky part. Um, while we don't charge for attorneys to be on the platform, we also don't pay them. So for us, it's a give and take, uh, which means we want the attorneys uh, on our platform. They will be visible for the contributions that they make, which are just a couple of minutes, basically, for them to answer a couple of questions that they can really answer from the top of their head. Um, what they will get in return is visibility and to be, become part of a network of international folks that are like-minded. Um, but at the other end, we also don't pay for contributions. So it is a give and take where we provide the platform, the infrastructure and the con contact basically to a network. Um, and at the same time, we ask the contributors um, to, to make these, uh, these little contributions. That has been the biggest challenge yet. Thank you for that, Oliver. Um, I'm gonna ask you a very forward question, and I apologize if I'm being too direct here, but Web3 is very much known for its hype factor. Everybody's building and excited and hyping people up and social media and whatever. And then projects invest heavily in building infrastructure and building community. And then after a much anticipated waiting period, they release their products. And very often, after spending lots of time and money and legal hours and development hours, after they launch their product, nobody shows up to the party. And I know that you've invested quite a bit of time and energy yourself in creating Web3 legs and bringing in contributors and generating content. And I wonder if this is, again, and I apologize for being so forward, I wonder if this is a similar to other aspects of Web3 in that you built this platform. Has anybody shown up to the party? Is anybody using and engaging with this content? Have you got any feedback? Yes, that's a great question. Um, so um, that would be the great question for Manuel to answer uh, because he's the one um, managing, tracking the traffic and all of that. But since we are doing presentations every once in a while, I do get uh, snapshots from uh, the user numbers. And they are, let's say, good enough and international enough, and that's most important for us, that we want to continue. So certainly we're not hitting uh, Amazon rates or anything like that, but it's in the hundreds and in the thousands from one, uh, from one event to the next, uh, which makes it useful for us to, to do it. Uh, I mean, we're all investing time and uh, most of us uh, also personal money um, into making this fly. So it's not just a project where we want to showcase 
hey guys, if you uh, are afraid of doing Web3 projects, I mean, we're attorneys, we're even paying for it, we can do it, you don't have to be afraid. That is one of the key messages, obviously, but it's also something where we want to build a sustainable business case. So um, it started more like a marketing project, to be quite honest, and it, did, it wasn't even meant to be monetized um, at the beginning, uh, but we're far past that point right now. Uh, now that we are um, getting international recognition, also especially for the design, for the concept, so we won a couple of different uh, design awards for our from our agency for this concept. Uh, the most prestigious probably is the one that we will get uh, in, in two weeks, which is the Red Dot, Red Dot Design Award in international. Uh, super cool. Um, so, I mean, we're getting the attention not only of people who want to come and uh, get legal questions answered, but we also get the attention of people who look how lawyers would go about a legal web free project uh, which means uh, again maybe serving as a little role model for people to not be afraid and just do it uh, because obviously we haven't solved all the legal issues ourselves for the platform for the question who how can we do it how can we uh, connect attorneys uh, and clients how can we accept payment how do we funnel that uh, we have to make sure that we're not into anti-money laundering uh, topics ourselves. So there are a lot of different things. Um, I mean, we launched our own NFT project where we sold consultancy vouchers, um, prepaid consultancy vouchers for people to then access that in a token gated virtual environment for an in immersive client meeting. I mean, there are so many keywords al alone in that sentence. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to do it. Is it in economic success yet? No, it's not. And the simple reason being, uh, it doesn't have to be. It was not designed to be at this stage. Do we want it to become one? Well, obviously, yes. Um, now that we are getting attention also from investors, so people are, are starting to approach us and say, that's, that's a weird thing you're doing there, but you're still doing it. And I see that the numbers of your contributors are going up. We now have over 250 people registered from over 50 jurisdictions who answer questions on our platform. And now if you take that and scale it even more, the next thing that we're doing is to offer prepaid meetings where you can book meetings online with each of the attorneys. So it's in super easy access to all the contributors. If you just browse the website and you see, hey, there is a question answered by someone from Israel, for example, I want to get in touch with that guy. You click it and you can immediately access the Calendly and book a meeting, prepay with credit card. Get the option to check a Zoom meeting, Google Meet, or an immersive meeting in our virtual space. That that is an easy thing. Um, so the next question is, where do we earn the money? And obviously, as a platform, it is easy to then get some sort of a platform fee, maybe from an interaction that we uh, that we help uh, where we help connect people. Um, we could also start selling things that we don't want. Now, in this case, with the NFT collection, that was more of a test phase. We didn't even sell out that collection, which was only a 25 piece pilot uh, pilot phase collection. We sold not even half of those. Uh, so we sold consultancy vouchers for 15 minutes and for one hour. Um, and we thought, well, I mean, it, and the price was much lower than the hourly rate of the average attorney in our platform. And still people who wanted to interact. So we got a lot of applause from all our Web3 friends but ultimately they couldn't even buy it because they say, well, you know, I'm a big company, I'm interested in the project, but we don't have a company wallet. 
So I cannot even, we, we, have no, we have no account here for the company. He said, wait a second, but I've been advising you already last year for an NFT project. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's an outsourced project. Uh, there is an agency doing all of that and we are paid in fiat. So we get the money back in real money. We don't even have a company wallet because our compliance department is running nuts if we tell them. So how can we buy a voucher for a consultancy meeting? I would have to pride with my own uh, buy it with my own wallet and then charge it to my company. That would be just too much of a headache. I'm not doing it. And all these little things that are in between great idea and execution, execution and then use case, use case and fair money in return are, I think, the biggest struggle that all our clients have as well. And you just mentioned it. Uh, it's not just us. Uh, we have ideas and we even bring it to execution. And ultimately, the return is the difficult thing. The traffic may be the difficult thing to start with. Um, the use case is not the problem, but as long as there are too little people using it, in fact, um, it may need some additional stuff uh, to, to make it an attractive case. And just let me, let me just add it to, to that because I just mentioned the first thing that we're building now on top of the database uh, and, uh, and the network, and that is this booking platform. And the second thing that we're building right now um, is an obvious thing, it's an AI chatbot, uh, which means instead of now going to the platform, typing in, I am from Germany, I want a question about NFTs answered, I want a question about NFT and intellectual property answered, and then you go through the order structure of a, well, of, of a Windows uh, order, uh, not order, uh, um, folder structure, for example, um, it's easier if you go to the, to the platform and say, hey, where are you from? Um, what what do you want? Can we help you with some uh, questions? What Which question do you want to have answered? Um, we can guide you through. And so you will basically have a, an assistant guiding you through, but also interacting with the content of our platform. So we have our own training data, and that's the database of the questions and the answers we received. Um, this is what we're having in the testing phase. And I'm super excited about that because it will ultimately mean that you don't need to know beforehand what you are looking for, as you often have. That's one of the biggest problems with databases. You need to know what you look for before you find the answer. And here you can just have a, a chat. It's just an interaction. Um, and this interaction will lead you to questions and answers, but it, you can also immediately get a, like a chat GPT kind of answer for your question. And you will see this and this and this question answer was the reference for the answer that I gave you. Um, and I think that's, that is pretty cool. That has nothing to do with selling uh, the content. That has nothing to do with the interaction with the contributors. It may lead to follow-up questions um, and may lead to referrals uh, for these uh, attorneys, but not necessarily. And therefore, we're just trying to uh, uh, discover all options. The truth is that I was in touch with you and your team almost a year ago to be an early contributor on the platform. But then when I got to the Q&A part where I had to start filling out answers, I kind of tabled it to come back to later and then I never did. So right before our call this morning, I again submitted an application to be a Web3Lex contributor. And I look forward to being the first Web3Lex contributor from Israel. Yeah, you're not the first registered one, but you would be the first to make contributions. And it's funny that you say that too, because um, we see that we have statistics of how many people are excited about our platform when we talk about the, uh, it with them, how many register after the first conversation, and how many of those who register actually make contributions. 
that is something that is a that has been one of the biggest learnings for us. We need to make it easier for contributors to make the contributions. Certainly, at the beginning, we actually had an Excel spreadsheet uh, where people put their their name in, and then they can answer questions and they send them in on a on a Word document or something. It was really old school, uh, and now it is a bit more. Um, a bit more accessible, but we're even building something where the contributors can access the back and monitor um, the, the traffic also for their questions and answers, um, make their contributions in the database directly. So it's a lot easier. You don't need five, six, seven steps, registration, um, content creation, uploading, sending and all that. But it will simply, if you have five minutes between two calls, you can just log in, answer another question, log back out, thing is done. Uh, so the threshold of Entering and, and making contributions shall be as low as possible because that is where we see most of the value still in these international contributions from uh, from the attorneys. And I believe that you're a contributor yourself, right? For German law? I am. And to be honest, I was one of the last before we published because then obviously Ekta, who is the one responsible for the overall platform, he said, Oliver, you have to hand in your contributions now because we will be launching tomorrow. Answer your questions. Exactly. So I did. But and, and, and it showed me again how quickly you can do it. Now, if you are in, um, if you have expertise in the field um, and you certainly have, you will really be able to go through the questions and just uh, hit the recording button and it will take two or three sentences and it's all that. There are more complicated questions, obviously, some that need more, maybe even some review or some some research. Um, but we don't want people to have to make sophisticated research legal answers with a quote and, and the case, if there is one, great. But in most cases, it's just, look, property in Germany does not allow for digital items to be considered property, at least not when it comes to the law. But certainly there are analogies. Bam. Next question. If I buy an NFT, do I automatically get the use rights uh, to for the IP of the underlying asset? It's an easy yes or no. And the reason why, yes or no. And these are questions that come up quickly and the answers are super easy to um uh, to provide so you already mentioned that i had the opportunity to come out to your hometown of hamburg germany just a few weeks ago and one of the things that really intrigued me about the german economy specifically vis-a-vis -vis the blockchain industry is how internally focused it is israel is a small country with a small economy so we build everything to scale. We're constantly looking at Western markets and how we could break into there. In fact, Israeli companies um, incorporate with English documents for the sole purpose of having external investors being able to easily review them when they bring uh, outside money in. So we're very much focused on Western and European markets. Germany wasn't like that at all. I found that even, um, you know, all the entrepreneurs that I spoke to, all their marketing materials were in German. Everything was kind of just focused locally on use cases within the German market. And perhaps it's because you have such a big economy that you could sustain yourselves. But um, I just found that it was such a, a different, um, it's just a different language, like an entrepreneurial language. And, you know, as a German entrepreneur and lawyer, I wondered what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so I think there there are many many different answers, or the answer has many different parts. Um, first of all, I think Germany is a big enough market to be so you can have a sustainable business if it is even only in Germany. Um, 
I think that's probably not the case for most businesses in Israel, at least not if they have a, a this this tech focus. Um, they would rather um, have also they also want uh, to, to have other markets and not just the Israeli one. Um, for the U.S., for example, I think that's a mentality question on top of it. Um, so for the U.S., also obviously their market is big enough, but uh, the um, the idea of Having something that is world-leading uh, in every sense is, I think, very often a, a key, um, let's say, um, motivation uh, for people to do things. And it's also the perception that whatever they do is big enough to also conquer the world, which very often happens. Um, now, in Germany, what I just found out, uh, I think even just this morning, is that um, in, in Germany in the, in the last year, even though we're in the heavy bear market, um, the startup... Um, scene for web3 ventures is not even it's not even terrible so it actually it was growing more than in most other jurisdictions in most other countries and i think it kind of explains also what you just said um there is a certain knowledge there is a certain dedication to technology i think that is a traditional uh, well, maybe a traditional German thing, if there are any such uh, things. Um, and therefore, people who start building don't stop only because there is a bear market. Most of them have an interest, a technical interest. If they have uh, solid enough funding funding to continue even in a bear market, they will continue their um, their their projects. And what, what I have seen in the past uh, are many projects that went through in their agenda, and that agenda was built maybe uh, in the bull market, but not for a bull market, but for a longer term. So their calculation didn't didn't change necessarily only because uh, the crypto market went up or down. Um, now, if you are uh, if your business model is built on throwing out some NFTs and making a quick buck, that has never been a sustainable business model anywhere in the world. So I think these projects are doomed to fail, even if big brands are behind them. Um, but if you have a business model that that uses the technology, some some decentralized um, finance solutions, for example, or some innovative other projects, um, and just throwing in something like WorldCoin, for example, um, that that seems weird at the beginning when you scan people's eyeballs, but if you uh, discover uh, the underlying idea of of making a true um, uh, um, a, a true decentralized and anonymous anonymous privacy network. Um, a, a zero uh, knowledge proof, um, fantastic idea behind it. That is something that has also been developed partly in Germany. Uh, and people don't stop only because it is here um, and the market is smaller, but they want to grow it in Germany maybe and then expand. It's not the German mentality, even though there are a lot of startups and founders, to grow something immediately up to and blow it up uh, with, with tons of millions uh, uh, of, of VC and private equity money, but it's rather to build sustainable business cases and to test it in the local markets before you go global. Um, therefore, I think, yeah, I can share that observation. There are many tech companies in Germany who do what they had started before the crisis and they're still there and they hopefully will be in the future. So you're, you're an IP attorney or predominantly an IP attorney. And obviously, NFTs were certainly a blessing for anybody who's in the IP sector. They brought with them so many very interesting and important questions around IP. And I think we're seeing um, similar conversations happening around AI now. AI also, especially generative AI, has brought a lot of really interesting questions vis-a-vis -vis 
IP ownership? Whose is it? Uh, what what do you own? Obviously, now being in a bear market, we're looking for other things to do with our time, and AI has certainly become one of them. And I see you've also put you know um, a big emphasis on AI, especially vis-a-vis IP. Now, you and I both know that crypto isn't just a hype. Certainly, there are like hype aspects of cycles within the crypto industry and certain subsectors of products, but the infrastructure of blockchain is very much here to stay forever. It's not going anywhere, and it has many, many valuable attributes to it. And the same can be said for AI. Nobody, you know, AI didn't wasn't born yesterday, and it's certainly not going away tomorrow. But I'm curious if you see some of the hype elements that were in crypto in AI as well. Do you think this is all going to die down in a very short while? Are we just experiencing a crypto-esque hype, or is this something that's going to be different? Yeah, I think um, AI is also a hype, but it's even a more sustainable hype that will move from hype cycle into something that will not go away anymore. I'm not sure every day that is true for Web3. Um, I, I hope, <laughs> certainly also for some of the investments that I made there. Um, but for AI, I think that's very much of a different story on many different levels, cultural level, creative level, but also legal questions that need to be solved immediately. And that is also maybe not the case for some of the Web3 questions. Now here in particular, obviously it is a intellectual property question or a copyright question that is uh, that is predominant um, in, in the use of AI tools. Now I'm, I'm talking about generative AI tools, especially for the creative industry, uh, something like mid-journey to creative text to image uh, um, um, results, for example, or runway where you have the same for videos or you have the same for audio or you have the same also for text like JackGPT, et cetera. And what I think is important also to uh, always to, to, to start with is to differentiate between the input and the output. Uh, so you have two completely different set of also copyright uh, topics that you have to cover when it comes to the input. Input I consider to be the training data and the prompt. So um, what you put into um, the, the, the tool, if you so want. And you really can make a, a cut, draw, draw a strict line here and then say, and then uh, let's look at the output. So um, what, what is generated? So the, the picture that Midjourney creates, for example. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the output has a close relation uh, to the input for every question. For some of them, yes, but not for all. Let me start with the most obvious question. Um, if something is generated by an AI, and it doesn't matter if through infringing data or through your own training data, or the prompt is just one word or just two pages long, whatever is generated by the AI, first of all, is something that a machine produces. It's, it's creation by, uh, by a tool. So it's, it's a software product, maybe. It is not, and that is what, uh, what people may dispute already, it is not a human creation per se. And now there are many different views in many different jurisdictions, how much of the human input is necessary to make it a human creation. So if you have a super sophisticated prompt, if you start from your own image that is just being modified, if you whatever do do whatever influence um, on the on the side of the prompt and of the training data to create a very very specific output that you can almost anticipate what it is 
and you're using the AI just as a tool, then maybe the human factor may become much higher than just using picture of a bird and you get a random picture. Um, so that is, there is a lot to be discussed uh, on the legal side when it comes to copyrightable uh, output. So which rights? Um, well, you keep talking about the output. What about the input? You just now gave an example of having a complex prompt. Yes. So complex, in fact, that you can anticipate to a very high degree of likeliness the output. Certainly a prompt like that, the input in this case, may be copyrightable in and of itself. Absolutely. The, the prompt itself it can be an, an art and a work of literature almost. So it is, it is something that has a creative value. But that, yes, but the if you use that basically as the trigger for a tool that creates something that is completely random, well, let's say it could be anything else that they produce. They just use like your, your color setting, your lighting setting and whatever, like a photographer, for example. I have... I'm pretty sure that we will end up in a situation where we will have something that is like a copyright or like a little copyright or a copyright that takes into consideration there is a huge human factor, even though the output was ultimately created by the AI tool. I'm sure that we will get there. Uh, right now, we're not there yet, so we have to do good guessing. And now we have the very interesting situation that we have jurisdictions where we have copyright offices, for example. So they get the question now. They get the question now, is this copyrightable or not? Is this subject to a copyright or not? In other jurisdictions like Germany, for example, we don't have copyright offices. So we only have the creation and the creation process delivers you the copyright and there is nothing you can register. So people can claim that they have copyrights. Yeah? And therefore, the only way you can develop the law is by suing each other. So what I tell my clients is, why don't you create something and tell your friendly neighborhood uh, agency next door to sue you over the copyright? Or you just invent cases and you sue each other just to get the stuff to court and to get court cases. Because before the legislator will come, the US and other systems uh, who have copyright offices, and they're dealing with exactly these questions already at this stage. They can make decisions. That's okay. That's not. That's too much of a prompt. That's not enough. That change is not sufficient they will have a head start. And I think that's terrible. So similar to Germany, in Israel, there is no copyright registration requirement either. And just last week, I was giving a lecture to a group of academics about AI for academia, researchers and teaching, etc. And I mentioned to them this whole debacle that's unrolling vis-a-vis -vis AI and IP rights. And they said, oh, well, that's not relevant to Israel because there's no copyright registration here. So when there's no copyright registration, typically what happens is, like you mentioned, if somebody has a claim that somebody else allegedly infringed their copyright, so then they'll go to the courts and the courts will resolve whether or not the copyright belonged to that person to begin with and whether or not there is a real infringement claim here. And I said, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to go and you're going to sue somebody else for infringing on your IP. And the courts are going to look at that and they're going to say, okay, what, ex what existing legal frameworks are evolving in the IP space? And generally, as with many other things, the Israeli courts will look to the courts and to the legal systems in place in the US. And let's say, okay, in the US, they have a requirement to register copyright. And the U.S. Copyright Office has said that only works that are created by humans 
a registrable. And they'll look at the Chris Castanova case and they'll look at other cases that are developing currently in the US and they're gonna say, okay, let's look at what the US is doing and let's apply that same logic to whatever we determine to be the case here. I imagine in Germany and in other jurisdictions where there's no copyright registration, they'll do the same. I think they will be very helpful and certainly uh, a good judge will look at that um, for um, some support in their own arguments. However, sometimes the, there are differences in uh, also uh, in, in the copyright laws uh, between Europe and, uh, and the US, for example. Just, just as one example, the, the fair use component is dealt with in a little bit of a different way. Um, also, when it comes to data mining, the European approach is much more liberal and much more open than the US would ever be. So all the, uh, the copyright cases that are being filed right now by authors that say, well, my book was used, uh, uh, at least if, if I put, uh, if I ask ChatGPT to write a summary of my book, how can they know? So they need to have used the data of my book. Otherwise, they could not answer these questions. So that seems to be copyright infringement. Um, and others uh, here might say, well, if it is publicly available somewhere, that that is part of a data mining process where we're not reproducing, but we're just learning, like a visitor in a museum who just looks at a picture and goes back home. It doesn't take the picture home, but the memory of what it looked like. Uh, so they can kind of reproduce and describe what it looked like. Um, that is an interesting thing. Uh, and a different uh, perspective, for example, in, uh, in Germany uh, or in, in, in most European jurisdictions and the US is the very strong component of moral rights in copyright, um, which is um, a different aspect uh, in Germany and, and in France, for example. So the, the attachment of the creator to the work of art will never go away. So you can never abandon fully your moral right to your, uh, to, 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 to your work um, uh, as compared, or let's say the opposite may be true in the US where you can even make someone else and sell the copyright and make someone else the owner of that entire copyright without even considering the moral part of it. So yes, influence totally, but not necessarily, um, it will not work everywhere and therefore that I mean, it, it sounds like a bold move, but um, I've, I've had that idea with uh, other clients before in other matters uh, when it came to um, cleaning images and reputation from people on Google, for example. A couple of years ago, we started to sue. We, we created our own case, sued ourselves, um, went to Google and showed them the verdict, and they cleaned, let's say, uh, the rest of that. Uh, so basically saying, hey, look, a court said that the following picture may not be distributed, the following statement may not be distributed. And that was sufficient for Google to say, well, then I guess we have to block it uh, because we don't want to be caught uh, in, uh, in a dispute. And if a German court says that this is illegal, then that's good enough for us. And now in, in, in a certain way, we created that case that we made that up, but we have an official court judgment dealing with exactly that matter. And it didn't, it didn't matter if the parties really had a dispute or not, but the court had a real case to deal with. Um, it sounds a bit weird, um, but uh, well, yeah. And uh, well, to be honest, I haven't found a client yet who wants to do it, but I tell every client, especially um, in the creative industry now, well, you can be the front runner. You can have your name on that case even. If you're agency XYZ and you have the landmark case for this decision, I mean, you can you can list all sorts of different questions that are legally relevant and just get a court to tell you. And even if it's just the first instance courts, it doesn't matter. It's better than not having anyone telling you uh, and waiting for the real cases. Then we'll go to federal Supreme Court, which will take another 10 years before we know. It doesn't make any sense. Interesting. So you suggest suing yourselves in order to force regulators and courts 
to take a stance that you could rely on. <laughs> That's brilliant. I'm going to quote you on that. Oh, yes, please. Okay, well, you know, these are these are scary technologies and there may or may not be scary times ahead. I know lots of people like to quote Isaac Asimov's books. I just last night heard a great discussion, an open discussion between Elon Musk and our prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, quote, <laughs> who also quoted Isaac Asimov and kind of just talked about a lot of the scary elements of AI, you know, what, you know, insofar as it may overtake us in as uh as intelligent human beings and what what the future may hold for us what do you think the future holds like what are the things that you're most scared of about these technologies i think it is important that we use these technologies to get familiar with how they function what they can do what they cannot do um to identify that just as an example ChatGPT can can create output that is utterly false uh, so it's basically like someone lying to you without even being ashamed of it and without even thinking that they lie, which is a very dangerous thing if you consider um, how people use the internet, how people may also use these generative AI tools. So I think it will be very important to get uh, a um, to, to well to make people um, understand what these tools can do today and what they cannot. They will not provide full security. I think transparency is something that is super important. Training is super important. You need to educate people on how to use it. But just as an example, um, telling kids at school you're not allowed to use AI because that is cheating um, will not work because people are curious. It seems like an easy fix to things if you're lazy. Um, so it will make the lazy ones even lazier. Um, it doesn't make sense to assume that people want to cheat if they use it. I think it would make much more sense to say, use ChatGPT to write an essay on the following and then come back next day and discuss it in class. And you will see the results are very different. And maybe there is a good result, maybe others are bad. And then teach kids, um, for example, now I'm just using the example of kids, but you can use it everywhere else. You cannot know how good or bad something is if you don't try it, if you don't test it, and if you don't challenge it as well. And I think this is where we are right now. What we need to understand is it's never going to go away anymore. It is extremely helpful and useful in many cases, and it needs to be well treated with care and, and, and carefully and also mindfully. Yeah, you know, I totally agree with you. Just last week, I was asked to come and give a lecture to the entire academic faculty at a university here in Israel. Before I got up to give my lecture, a student was featured giving a perspective on the use of generative AI tools from the from the student's perspective. And after he got out of the room and left, and I got up on the stage, I think they felt, you know, more comfortable now that there was an adult in the room. They started to complain, oh my God, how are we going to catch these these students? Terrible that they're using these generative AI tools to... Um, quote unquote, cheat on exams or on, on how they study for exams and how they create papers. We need to stop this. We need to stop this. And I said to them, guys, you need to take a deep breath and take a completely different perspective on this. If you feel the students are cheating, well, you, know, you could, quote unquote, cheat too. You could use these tools to create assignments more speedily and efficiently. And instead of being the ones who are looking how to catch your students out, why don't you be the ones who teach them how to use these tools responsibly? 
in the world of tomorrow, they may not need to write and research in the same way that people today have had to do those things. So as teachers, as academics, it's your goal to prepare them for the future. Preparing them for the future might mean something very different than what it meant a decade or two decades or even a year ago. So try and incorporate these tools into your assignments and try and be the ones who lead the change by explaining to them how to use them, you know, responsibly. So I absolutely agree with you on your perspective on these technologies and where they're going and taking and how imperative it is that we take the right approach towards how we use them and address them. Thank you very, very much for joining today. I really, really appreciate this conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. For our audience, what's the best way for them to be able to get in touch with you and to follow your brilliant content that you put out? Yipsy, first of all, thank you once again for having me. And it's, it's really been a pleasure chatting to you. And it's, it's always a pleasure. And I hope that we will get the chance to have our real-life coffee very rather sooner than later as well. Um, so the, the easiest way of um, uh, connecting with me, I think, right now is either by just following me and, and interacting with me on LinkedIn. That is a platform that I do use uh, quite intensively for uh, also for legal exchanges, but also for stuff I think is important to discuss, sometimes also just for, for my entertainment and for someone else's entertainment, maybe. Uh, I, I share about my job, my say my ideas, my visions, my legal stuff, but also uh, every once in a while stuff that is completely unrelated. Um, if you want to get in touch uh, with respect to becoming a contributor or using the platform um, for Web3Lex, that would be Web3Lex, so the number three, web3lex.io. Um, that's the platform. We'd love to get feedback. Um, we know it's not it's not perfect yet, um, but uh, we need feedback to uh, improve, and we'd be very appreciative for every feedback that we get, positive but also negative ones. And certainly, if uh, if someone listens to this uh, to this episode and wants to become a contributor, everyone is very welcome. What we typically do is that we invite people for a brief chat, so we get to know them. We can double check um, also their um, their track record for Web3, for example. So we need to have people who are uh, knowledgeable and don't only claim to be knowledgeable. Uh, but what they then do is they come to the platform um, and they click on the contributor section and they will find a link to a form where they can register and the process will be taken uh, up by the team there. So we will get in touch. We will have this chat I just mentioned and then make you guys familiar with how the platform works. And again, as I said right now, it's still a bit handmade a couple of extra spreadsheets and it's not super easy, um, but it's not super terrible either. Uh, we'll work on the user experience for the contributors until then. Bear with us and uh, would love to have you as a supporter. Thank you very much, Oliver. I am and will continue to be supportive. Wishing you and all of our listeners a happy Jewish New Year or as we say in Hebrew, a Shana Tova. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Code. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe, share with your friends, and to tune in again next week for more fun and insightful conversation.